question I was talking about was maps and feelings. It's just the question of whether the brain is analog or digital. And anyway, it's, uh, I'll give you a little bit of what I wrote. Brains use maps to process information. Information from the retinas goes to several areas of the brain where the picture seen by the eye is converted into maps of various kinds. Information from sensory nerves in the skin goes to areas where the information is converted into maps of the body. The brain is full of maps. And a big part of the activity is transferring information from one map to another. As we know from our own use of maps, mapping from one picture to another can be done either by digital or by analog processing. Because digital cameras are now cheap and film cameras are old-fashioned and rapidly becoming obsolete, many people assume that the pictures of that the process of mapping in the brain must be digital. But the brain has been evolving over millions of years and does not follow our ephemeral fashions. A map is in its essence an analog device, using a picture to represent another picture. And the imaging in the brain must be done by direct comparison of pictures rather than by translation of pictures into digital form. Introspection tells us our brains are spectacularly quick, transforming two tasks essential to our survival, recognition of images in space and recognition of patterns of sound in time. We recognize a human face or a snake in the grass in a fraction of a second. We recognize the sound of a voice or of a, f f a footstep equally fast. The process of recognition requires the comparison of a perceived image with an enormous database of remembered images. How this is done in a quarter of a second without any conscious effort, we have no idea. It seems likely the scanning of images is associative memory is done by direct comparison of analog data rather than by digitization. So uh, I don't want to go through all this, but um, the quality of a poem such as Homer's Odyssey or Eliot's Wasteland is like the quality of a human personality. A large part of our brain is concerned with social interactions, getting to know other people, learning how to live in social groups. The observed correlation between size of brain and size of social groups in primates makes it likely that our brains evolve primarily to deal with social problems. Our ability to see others as analogs of ourselves is basic to our existence as social animals. Then I talk about the uh, what what uh, Danny Hillis told us 30 years ago about the Songs of Eden. That is, of course, a wonderful story that Danny invented to explain the evolution of speech from song. He had the idea, songs originally were the evolving species and apes were just the phenotype. And uh, 
how do evolve, how do songs actually evolve? They have to be remembered by an ape to survive. So how do you get remembered by an ape? Well, you have to give yourself some associated practical use. And so the, they have to be useful to the apes in order to survive. So you, a song can only become f fit to survive by associating itself with, 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 with meaning, and thereby you have a co-evolution of apes and songs so that the songs gradually acquire more and more meaning and the apes acquire more and more communication and that in the end develops into speech. I think this is a beautiful idea. It's probably true and uh, so it's something we might discuss. And uh, of course, it, the song is of course analog from beginning to end. It is this, the sound and spirit of the thing that, that is transmitted, not the individual phonemes. So then, I think that's almost enough. So I'm suggesting that the brain is mainly an analog device with certain small regions specialized for digital processes. It's certainly not true, as it's sometimes claimed by pundits talking on television, that the left hemisphere is digital and the right hemisphere is analog. It seems to be true that most of the digital processing is done on the left side, but the division of labor between the two hemispheres is still largely unexplored. Okay, let's discuss all that. <laughs> Mayor, uh, one of the interesting features in going back um, over the original uh, Mason conferences on cybernetics is that this is a wonderful example of something that is now recurring. Problems that showed up then, which were somewhat irrelevant for decades, largely because of what Rodney was saying that, you know, we adopted von Neumann architecture computers and then Moore's law took off, and so we didn't have to bother with different ways of processing information. But they were very concerned about the question of gestalt. You know, what, what does it mean? Why do brains, you know, human beings get a gestalt, a, a sense of a whole from all these disconnected parts. And, and they really were questioning, you know, what's going on in the brain that gives you this notion of, aha, there, that's Freeman right there, I recognize him. Um, and now actually, and they also asked the question of whether artificial intelligences, you know, whether computers could possess, you know, could have a gestalt. And now for ever since, you know, famous example of, of Google's deep neural networks learning to recognize kittens on the internet. Um, at least they have a gestalt of a kitten. I mean, mind you, from a Bayesian perspective, the prior probability of a picture on the kitten, of the, on the internet being a kitten is rather high. But I think it's actually, you know, it, it, now I would say for the first time, we, we, it's pretty fair to say that we have uh, artificial neural networks that possess a gestalt. A gestalt. And this is amazing because, as you know, it's like 70 years ago now that, that this, this question first came up. And up until now, I would have said probably computers didn't have this notion of uh, image recognition programs didn't have this sense of like, aha, it's a kitten, but now they do. So, so it's a remarkable time. No, that's all true. I mean, this is what they call deep learning is, uh, in fact, it's, 
so uh, it's, it's uh, imitating a, well, uh, this comparison of images by translating it into digital language. But still, it's, it's, a, it's a, not likely the brain is actually doing it that way. Neural nets critically, in their current instantiation, critically depend on the fact that they have real number weights that can be kind of progressively improved by calculus-like methods. I mean, the, the question of whether there's a way to do this with purely digital you know, things where there isn't this sort of calculus-like progressive improvement is still an open question. Yes. I have a doubt. No, no, certainly it's an open question. I'm just prejudiced. No, no, but the, the, in your sense, I don't even know whether, in your sense, a neural net with real number weights, is that analog or is that digital? That's digital, but it's a sort of, it's a crude digital imitation of a natural process which was animal. Okay, but so to make it analog, you'd have to have a whole field, so to speak? Well, just to analog is like just, images sort of slide over each other somehow and match. But it's a much more error-tolerant uh, error system, so you're not, you're not asking for 12-digit accuracy. If, if an image looks like another image, then it's essentially remembered together with it. So associative memory is sort of the basis of the whole process, and that works with amazing smoothness that we don't understand. You know, it's surprising how well these neural nets work. Yeah, so, so certainly at, at some level, I mean, there's non-firing neurons in the retina, which are clearly doing an analog, purely analog computation right. in every sense of the word. But I'm curious about if you have something like a Hopfield network, which is basically just sort of finding eigenvalues of a matrix by you know, repeatedly feeding itself back into itself, would you, is it, is an eigenvalue a digital? It's sort of a digital output of a completely analog system. Yes. So I mean, would, would you put that in the analog category? Well, of course, you don't have to put things into categories. So most things are a mixture, and that's that's a good example. I mean, one of the things that confuses the conversation for me as an image theorist and a gestalt historian is that We've made the machines interpolate and extrapolate from the digital to produce gestalt interfaces for us, right? So it, it's a complicated conversation because all of the compression algorithms are tinkered to produce something that we will then complete. We will then take the fragmentary pieces and do our analog business on them to create a song that we say, oh, it's so real, you know, the Edison, you know, wax thing. I mean, so we're in, I mean, we're the cybernetic completion of the digital. We are the analog meat machines that make the gestalt out of what I would imagine the machine doesn't care is a kitten or not. And when you look at some of what Google calls kittens, mm -hmm. it's really breaking the gestalt picture, <laughs> right? Because it's a couple of eyes in a certain position and some fur, right? Where the whole premise of gestalt is the completion of the fragmentary and the kind of curious project by which um, three different corners are perceived as a triangle, you know, um, obscured by a circle, right? I mean, the three triangles are, 
you know, robustly perceived as a geometric figure by the human brain, which a machine would only do if we said, can you please make these fragmentary corners into a triangle for the human perceiver? Could you please interpolate those missing pieces? Because we need to see a triangle, right? So this, this interface is productively confused by what we have given the machines as purposes. We, we have made them into makers of analog maps for us, uh, but I don't yet have a sense of what the machines would do by themselves, you know, for themselves. George? This is a historical footnote that when the cybernetics group first formed, that wasn't the name. It was, it was named the Teleological Society. That was the name of the group. And then when Macy came in and, and supported it, he said, well, well, we'll support this, but, but we got to have a different name. And that's when they named themselves the cybernetics group. But originally it was the Teleological Society. That was the fundamental premise. What do we call this group? <laughs> the Anti-Teleological Society. The Eschatology Society. What, what, what would you imagine might be some of the, the things about which we currently have theories? But what would be the, what would be the type of theory that you would have for what might be going on in the brain? If it's not, if, if you say, you know, it's, you know, transforming an image into some different projection of an image or something, it's, what, what, what's the... You know, well, I'd like to ask the question, sort of, why did we evolve people like Beethoven and Mozart or Sophocles or Eliot, people who are masters of music or masters of language? This, uh, this degree of sophistication, in, both in music and in language, is far beyond anything that biological survival needed, but it just happened. And, and so how do you understand that? It's, uh, I mean, the, the fact that Art is at least equal to science. Yeah. I guess it's not quite science. As a vehicle. Well, my metaphor would be, you know, you take some simple program, you run it, it does amazingly complicated things, and, you know, the program might have been, in some sense, constructed only because it, you know, makes an array of three black cells after four steps or something. But it so happens, as a side effect, produces this amazingly complicated behavior. That would be my metaphor for what's going on in those cases. Yeah, well, I would say it's, it's that there's some quality in the whole scene, the quality of a sunset in the, in, the, in the tropics or the quality of a symphony, which, which is, of course, it is the gestalt. It is, it is something that is inherent in the entire picture, not in the individual parts. And that is the brain actually operating directly on the image and not on the constituent parts. So I, I think the literal answer to your question may actually be runaway sexual selection. <laughs> that, that basically, you know, the way to get laid was to write a sonnet. <laughs> or sing a beautiful song. I, I must say, I think that work, might... It didn't work for you with Beethoven. this group, um, right? Well, this is like, like you know, right? like... yes, exactly. That's how I, I would just point that out. It's not obvious that that's generally, that generally artistic and scientific achievement has that. Well, but, but the question is, why are we evolved to support artistic and scientific achievement? Well, here's, here's an interesting possibility, which I think, uh, which is something that I think has come out of the deep learning world in an interesting way, which is that a lot of the time, a lot of times, 
the way that you can actually make those systems work is by having these hallucinations where what the system is doing is generating a whole lot of possible outputs from some representation that aren't actually actual, um, uh, that aren't actually things that you perceive, for example, or aren't actually inputs, inputs to the system. And it's by actually having this process of, say, taking a generative model and then uh, simulating a whole lot of outcomes that you aren't actually seeing, that, or things that you're not actually that you're not actually detecting. That act, that that's a really crucial step in making the things work. And then and then having another system that looks at the relationship between the generative model and the outputs and uses that relationship to the hallucinated outputs to the things that never actually existed except that you generated them and then tries to make sense out of that, that turns out to be really important computationally. And I think it's at least interestingly analogous to things like pretend play in children, for example, which is, you know, you don't need to have Einsteins and Beethovens to have examples of people creating things that are non-real, that look as if there's no particular evolutionary, what's the evolutionary advantage to having a, you know, an imaginary friend or a, a crazy pretend world? And that's not something that you need to depend on experts for. That's something that seems to be a universal characteristic of childhood. So, I mean, that's another just-so story, but it, I, it does seem to me interesting that that's one of the things that's come out of the computational, one of the things that's come out of the, the actual computational practice. But I, but I think the notion that, that sexual selection causes you to explore the most complex expressions of those, to demonstrate that the complexity is working, plays out not just with intelligence, but it, it, it plays out with morphogenesis and so on. So there are all kinds of examples in low-level animal behavior or you know, forms of flowers, things like that, where that process of feedback on selection, sexual selection tends to select for sort of complexity and beauty because that's sort of hard to do. And so therefore, it sort of shows it's all working. I mean, if Chomsky were here, he would say, well, look, you know, human beings have universal human language, which, which is which we gifted to computers, by the way. And we're the only entities on the planet that have this kind of universal language. And if you look at chimpanzees or songbirds or dolphins, they just cannot process information in the way that we do. And one of the features of, open, of universal human language is this open-endedness mm -hmm. that allows you it, it, the potential to, you know, to construct any possible set of ideas or to, to compute anything in the case of computers. And so you, the sonnets and, and you know, Mozart symphonies, it's, that's just, you know, once you give people that, that's what you've got to expect to happen sooner or later. I, I mean, I have a different observation, which is that culture is a very unique human product. I'm sure you can argue that bowerbirds have culture and so on. So let's just put that to the side. But we have produced these externalities partly to evolve ourselves. I mean, that's part of the magic, that you make this thing called art, then you gather people around it to interpret it. They make a certain meaning, which then changes them for the future, changes their offspring, changes their survivability, right? So, I mean, this is, this is part of the operation that fascinates me. I mean, not everybody who listens to Beethoven goes off to have sex with Beethoven, right? So what else is going on with art? It is there to evolve us in directions that we want, that we agree socially and culturally that we want to evolve. I think that's rather extraordinary. There's a really interesting study a couple years ago that show uh, birds have hemlines. 
that, that they have fashion, that if you look at what a bird considers desirable, this was done, I, f I forget what the population was, but like what color feather and how long the feathers are, um, it cycles, it changes. There's fashions for the birds, and it traced it through to show that if you didn't do that, they would over-specialize. That if something was considered a locked-in fashion, the birds would exaggerate it, and so they keep, you know, sort of having, you know, a new hemline to force themselves to diversify. So to, just to follow up in your comment, I think part of the appeal of the Songs of Eden story that Friedman told is that the we that we're talking about is not just the monkeys. The we is, in fact, that culture that evolved. So right. what, what makes us human is that combination of those two things together. And, and so what was evolving is not just the genetics that was evolving the monkey, but it's the, the cultural complexity in which all those things can happen. And that's part of what we are. So we're, we're the combination of those two things. It would seem that all art and all music is a special case of what everyone is doing. Um, and, there, and so there might be a random element that there are just people who happen to do it better. Uh, and then... Just one more remark. If you bring in quantum mechanics, of course, I mean, both digital and analog computers may be classical or they may be quantum, but if you bring in quantum mechanics, makes it an additional strong advantage to, to the analog way of, of working. Because I mean, quantum mechanics has this quality of coherence that it gives you a, a, the, the parts of a, a, a whole physical landscape are connected in this mysterious way and that the, the different parts of an image are coherent. And that is totally lost when you digitize, but it's preserved when you do analog. So that's an additional reason why analog computing probably looks more promising. So um, Seth and I were both part of a very interesting program on quantum biology. Biology uses quantum coherence exquisitely, but only over a very small number of degrees of freedom. It's very expensive to preserve coherence, and so it, uh, there isn't, it's very unlikely, I think Seth, you would agree, that there's large-scale quantum coherence anywhere near biology. It's in, it's in very selected, a few number, small number of interacting degrees. No, I disagree totally with that. I mean, quantum, quantum coherence works beautifully over large distances. So you know, but over large distances, but it's a question of degrees of freedom and thermalization. What are the examples, actually, in biology? What are the so, known examples? Yeah, so um, photosystem one, um, well, a PS1 that if you just look out the window, turns all this, these green leaves right yeah. here—that's all LHC2, which is the which is the, the uh, primary photosystem uh, for plants, and it uses quantum coherence in a very sophisticated fashion to increase the efficiency yeah. of exotonic transport. And then one of the really interesting ones—and it's amazing—it would be yeah. it would be one tenth as efficient if it weren't for this quantum yeah. coherence. Sensing, yeah, one, one other interesting one is sensing magnetic fields. There's spin-dependent chemistry in how you perceive magnetic fields. But again, it, 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 you can do long distance, let's see, maintaining quantum coherence in a, with lots of degrees of freedom against a heat bath is really, really hard. That's a challenge in quantum computing. You know, it, it ends up being isolated in small numbers of degrees of freedom. You carefully protect the coherence. It, it just, just 
the, the physics makes it very unlikely there's large-scale quantum coherence. Well, that's not entirely true because, I mean, um, uh, if you look at light from a distant star, right, uh, then, and you have a big enough telescope, then you can exhibit coherence in, in this light. This is the Hanbury-Brown twist effect, right, which is what allows you to build large baseline telescopes. Yeah, so there are, no, and that's, but that's a situation where it's light that's traveled, and right. it could have traveled for millions of years. And, and there's no interaction, it's just, you know, the, the phase fronts are, you know, yeah, well, there's lateral it, coherence. It didn't get decohered from the yeah. light. And there isn't longitudinal coherence. In that case, it's lateral coherence. It's still <laughs> Freeman, I'm, I'm curious so, about, about how you get this, um, your model of the analog and the gestalt going without quantum computation. Because if we assume it's all classical physics and classical computation, then presumably it breaks down into, uh, into local mechanistic parts. So how do we, so, so if I operate on an image <coughs> via classical mechanisms, it's presumably going to have to work by, at some level, operating on the, uh, on the parts of the image, and aren't you then going to come back and say, "Well, that's not, that's not what I needed. I needed something holistic that operated on the whole image at once." And you know, one can at least smell a way of trying to do that with quantum mechanics. But how could one possibly do that without quantum mechanics? Well, that's of course it's just one of the big mysteries. We, we have no idea how all that works. If the brain does it via local mechanisms of neurons, is that would that count, or would that be a would that still be breaking it down into parts? Well, I don't know what a neuron is, and, and <laughs> not as anybody else. A neuron is a very, very clever device. <laughs>